July, Ambrose Beers. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers that make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with greenish, scaly fabric, soft, plush uppers, foam footbeds, and non-slip grips on the soles. And three white claws on each foot. One size fits most, up to women's 10.5, men's 8. Footbed measures 10.5 inches. Check out Dave's Corner of the Universe every last Tuesday of the month part of our monthly Cthulhu Mythos and other weirdness episodes. Or go to his blog at davescorneroftheuniverse.wordpress.com. Also join us later this month when we talk to writer Rami Ungar about his next novel, Rose, which should be out on Amazon right now. You can check check the show notes to find out where you can get a copy or check out the reviews for that. I really like it. It's, oh man, it's hard to describe, but uh, it would make a really good manga. It would make a really good manga. It's um, biological body horror. Uh, there's there's spellcasting elements in it. There's there's elemental spirits. It's It's pretty cool stuff. And you can find out more about him by going to Rami Ungar, the writer, and that is R-A-M-I-U-N-G-A-R, thewriter.com. Special thanks to all of my guests this month. If you want to be a guest on PGTTCM or Black Clock due to your hobbies or professions in academia, arts, literature, relating to weird fiction, gothic horror... Uh, old English, any of that fun stuff, folklore, Cthulhu mythos, weird fiction, horror in general, contact us and we'll see what we can do. P-G-T-T-C-M dot com slash contact to get a hold of us. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu mythos. Look for our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and Clock audio on instagram and facebook we've got pgttcm on twitter and black clock audio tales on youtube check out people's guide to the cthulhu mythos on the last tuesday of each month check out our new website at pgttcm.com edited by daniel spitzer music by kevin mcleod produced at badgers drift studio in beautiful north portland Recorded by Chloe Stewart. A resumed identity by Ambrose Beers. Chapter 1. The Review as a Form of Welcome One summer night, a man stood on a low hill overlooking a wide expanse of forest and field. By the full moon hanging low in the west, he knew, what he might not have known otherwise, that it was near the hour of dawn. A light mist lay along the earth, partly veiling the lower features of the landscape, but above it the taller trees showed in well-defined masses against the clear sky. Two or three farmhouses were visible through the haze, but in none of them, naturally, was a light. Nowhere, indeed, was any sign or suggestion of life, except the barking of a distant dog, which, repeated with mechanical iteration, served rather to accentuate than dispel the loneliness of the scene. 
The man looked curiously about him on all sides, as one who among familiar surroundings is unable to determine his exact place and part in the scheme of things. It is so, perhaps, that we shall act when, risen from the dead, we await the call to judgment. A hundred yards away was a straight road, showing white in the moonlight. Endeavoring to orient himself, as a surveyor or navigator might say, the man moved his eyes slowly along its visible length, and at a distance of a quarter mile to the south of his station saw, dim and gray in the haze, a group of horsemen riding to the north. Behind them were men afoot, marching in column, with dimly gleaming rifles aslant above their shoulders. They moved slowly and in silence. Another group of horsemen, another regiment of infantry, another and another, all in unceasing motion toward the man's point of view, past it and beyond. A battery of artillery followed, the cannoneers riding with folded arms on limber and casing, and still the interminable procession came out of the obscurity to south and passed into the obscurity to north, with never a sound of voice, nor hoof, nor wheel. The man could not rightly understand. He thought himself deaf, said so, and heard his own voice, although it had an unfamiliar quality that almost alarmed him. It disappointed his ear's expectancy in matter of timbre and resonance, but he was not deaf, and that for the moment sufficed. Then he remembered that there are natural phenomena to which some one has given the name acoustic shadows. If you stand in an acoustic shadow, there is one direction from which you will hear nothing. At the Battle of Gaines Mill, one of the fiercest conflicts of the Civil War, with a hundred guns in play, spectators a mile and a half away on the opposite side of the Chickamauga Valley heard nothing of what they clearly saw. The bombardment of Port Royal, heard and felt at St. Augustine, a hundred and fifty miles to the south, was an audible two miles to the north in a still atmosphere. A few days before the surrender at Appomattox, a thunderous engagement between the commands of Sheridan and Pickett was unknown to the latter commander a mile in the rear of his own line. These instances were not known to the man of whom we write, but less striking ones of the same character had not escaped his observation. He was profoundly disquieted, but for another reason than the uncanny silence of that moonlit march. Good lord, he said to himself, and again it was as if another had spoken his thought. If those people are what I take them to be, we have lost the battle and they are moving on Nashville. Then came a thought of self, an apprehension, a strong sense of personal peril, such as in another we call fear. He stepped quickly into the shadow of a tree and still the silent battalions moved slowly forward in the haze. The chill of a sudden breeze upon the back of his neck drew his attention to the quarter whence it came, and turning to the east he saw a faint gray light along the horizon, the first sign of returning day. This increased his apprehension. I must get away from here, he thought, or I shall be discovered and taken. He moved out of the shadow, walking rapidly toward the graying east. From the safer seclusion of a clump of cedars he looked back. The entire column had passed out of sight. The straight right road lay bare and desolate in the moonlight. Puzzled before, he was now inexpressibly astonished. So swift a passing of so slow an army, he could not comprehend it. Minute after minute passed unnoted. He lost his sense of time. He sought with a terrible earnestness a solution of the mystery, but sought in vain. When at last he roused himself from his distraction, the sun's room was visible above the hills, but in the new conditions he found no other light than that of day. His understanding was involved as darkly in doubt as before. On every side lay cultivated fields showing no sign of war and war's ravages. From the chimneys of the farmhouses, thin ascensions of blue smoke signaled preparations for a day's peaceful toil. Having stilled its immemorial allocution to the moon, the watchdog was assisting a negro who, prefixing a team of mules to the plow, was flatting and sharping contentedly at his task. The hero of this tale stared stupidly at the pastoral picture as if he had never seen such a thing in all his life. Then he put his hand to his head, passed it through his hair, and, withdrawing it, attentively considered the palm, a singular thing to do. Apparently reassured by the act, he walked confidently toward the road. Chapter 2. When you have lost your life, consult a physician. 
Dr. Stilling Melson of Murfreesboro, having visited a patient six or seven miles away on the Nashville Road, had remained with him all night. At daybreak he set up for home on horseback, as was the custom of doctors of the time and region. He had passed into the neighborhood of Stones River Battlefield when a man approached him from the roadside and saluted in a military fashion, with a movement of the right hand to the hat brim. But the hat was not a military hat, the man was not in uniform, and had not a martial bearing. The doctor nodded civilly, half thinking that the stranger's uncommon greeting was perhaps in deference to the historic surroundings. As the stranger evidently desired speech with him, he courteously reined in his horse and waited. Sir, said the stranger, although a civilian, you are perhaps an enemy. I am a physician, was the noncommittal reply. Thank you, said the other. I am a lieutenant of the staff of General Hazen. He paused a moment and looked sharply at the person whom he was addressing, then added, of the Federal Army. The physician merely nodded. Kindly tell me, continued the other, what has happened here? Where are the armies? Which has won the battle? The physician regarded his questioner curiously with half-shut eyes, after professional scrutiny prolonged to the limit of politeness. Pardon me, he said. One asking information should be willing to impart it. Are you wounded? he added, smiling. Not seriously, it seems. The man removed the unmilitary hat, put his hand to his head, passed it through his hair, and withdrawing it, attentively considered the palm. I was struck by a bullet and have been unconscious. It must have been a light, glancing blow. I find no blood and feel no pain. I will not trouble you for treatment, but will you kindly direct me to my command, to any part of the Federal Army, if you know? Again, the doctor did not immediately reply. He was recalling much that is recorded in the books of his profession, something about lost identity and the effect of familiar scenes in restoring it. At length, he looked at the man in the face, smiled, and said, Lieutenant, you are not wearing the uniform of your rank and service. At this the man glanced down at his civilian attire, lifted his eyes, and said, with hesitation, That is true. I... I don't quite understand. Still regarding him sharply, but not unsympathetically, the man of science bluntly inquired, How old are you? Twenty-three, if that has anything to do with it. You don't look it. I should hardly have guessed you to be just that. The man was growing impatient. We did not discuss that, he said. I want to know about the army. Not two hours ago I saw a column of troops moving northward on this road. You must have met them. Be good enough to tell me the color of their clothing, which I was unable to make out, and I'll trouble you no more. You are quite sure that you saw them? Sure! My God, I could have counted them! Why, really, said the physician, with an amusing consciousness of his own resemblance to the loquacious barber of the Arabian Nights, this is very interesting. I met no troops. The man looked at him coldly, as if he had himself observed the likeness to the barber. It is plain, he said, that you do not care to assist me. Sir, you may go to the devil. He turned and strode away, very much at random, across the dewy fields, his half-penitent tormentor quietly watching him from his point of vantage in the saddle, till he disappeared beyond an array of trees. Chapter 3. The Danger of Looking into a Pool of Water After leaving the road, the man slackened his pace, and now went forward rather deviously with a distinct feeling of fatigue. He could not account for this, though truly the interminable loquacity of that country doctor offered itself an explanation. Seating himself upon a rock, he laid one hand upon his knee, back upward, and casually looked at it. It was lean and withered. He lifted both hands to his face. It was seamed and furrowed. He could trace the lines of the tips of his fingers. How strange! A mere bullet stroke and a brief unconsciousness should not make one a physical wreck. I must have been a long time in hospital, he said aloud. Why, what a fool I am! The battle is in December, and it is now summer. He laughed. No wonder that fellow thought me an escaped lunatic. He was wrong. I am only an escaped patient. At a little distance, a small plot of ground enclosed by a stone wall caught his attention. With no very definite intent, he rose and went to it. In the center was a square, solid monument of hewn stone. It was brown with age, weather-worn at the angles, spotted with moss and lichen. 
between the massive block were strips of grass and the leverage of whose roots had pushed them apart in answer to the challenge of this ambitious structure time had laid his destroying hand upon it and it would soon be one with Nineveh and Tyre. In an inscription on one side, his eye caught a familiar name. Shaking with excitement, he craned his body across the wall and read, Hosn's Brigade, to the memory of its soldiers who fell at Stone River, December 31st, 1862. The man fell back from the wall, faint and sick. Almost within an arm's length was a little depression in the earth. It had been filled by a recent rain, a pool of clear water. He crept to it to revive himself, lifted the upper part of his body on his trembling arms, thrust forward his head and saw the reflection of his face as in a mirror. He uttered a terrible cry. His arms gave way. He fell, face downward, into the pool and yielded up the life that had spanned another life. End of A Resumed Identity A Wireless Message In the summer of 1896, Mr. William Holt, a wealthy manufacturer of Chicago, was living temporarily in a little town of central New York, the name of which the writer's memory has not retained. Mr. Holt had had trouble with his wife, from whom he had parted a year before. Whether the trouble was anything more serious than an incompatibility of temper, he is probably the only living person that knows. He is not addicted to the vice of confidences. Yet he has related the incident herein set down to at least one person without exacting a pledge of secrecy. He is now living in Europe. One evening he had left the house of a brother whom he was visiting for a stroll in the country. It may be assumed, whatever the value of the assumption in connection with what is said to have occurred, that his mind was occupied with reflections on his domestic infelicities and the distressing changes that they had wrought in his life. Whatever may have been his thoughts, they so possessed him that he observed neither the lapse of time nor whither his feet were carrying him. He knew only that he passed far beyond the town limits, and was traversing a lonely region by a road that bore no resemblance to the one by which he had left the village. In brief, he was lost. Realizing his mischance, he smiled. Central New York is not a region of perils nor does one long remain lost in it. He turned about and went back the way he had come. Before he had gone far, he observed that the landscape was growing more distinct, was brightening. Everything was suffused with a soft red glow in which he saw his shadow projected in the road before him. The moon is rising, he said to himself. Then he remembered that it was about the time of the new moon, and if that tricksy orb was in one of its stages of visibility. It had set long before. He stopped and faced about, seeking the source of the rapidly broadening light. As he did so, his shadow turned and lay along the road in front of him, as before. The light still came from behind him. That was surprising. He could not understand. Again he turned, and again facing successively to every point of the horizon. Always the shadow was before, always the light behind, a still and awful red. Holt was astonished, dumbfounded is the word that he used in telling it, yet seems to have retained a certain intelligent curiosity. To test the intensity of the light whose nature and cause he could not determine, he took out his watch to see if he could make out the figures on the dial. They were plainly visible, 
and the hands indicated the hour of eleven o'clock and twenty-five minutes. At that moment, the mysterious illumination suddenly flared to an intense and almost blinding splendor, flushing the entire sky, extinguishing the stars and throwing the monstrous shadow of himself athwart the landscape. In that unearthly illumination, he saw near him, but apparently in the air at a considerable elevation, the figure of his wife, clad in her night-clothing, and holding to her breast the figure of his child. Her eyes were fixed upon his, with an expression which he afterward professed himself unable to name or describe. Further than that, it was not of this life. The flare was momentary, followed by black darkness in which, however, the apparition still showed white and motionless. Then, by insensible degrees, it faded and vanished, like a bright image on the retina after the closing of the eyes. A peculiarity of the apparition, hardly noted at the time, but afterward recalled, was that it showed only the upper half of the woman's figure. Nothing was seen below the waist. The sudden darkness was comparative, not absolute, for gradually all objects of his environment became again visible. In the dawn of the morning, Holt found himself entering the village at a point opposite to that at which he had left it. He soon arrived at the house of his brother, who hardly knew him. He was wild-eyed, haggard, and grey as a rat. Almost incoherently, he related his night's experience. "'Go to bed, my poor fellow,' said his brother, "'and wait, we shall hear more of this.' An hour later came the predestined telegram. Holt's dwelling in one of the suburbs of Chicago had been destroyed by fire. Her escape cut off by the flames, his wife had appeared at an upper window, her child in her arms. There she had stood, motionless, apparently dazed. Just as the fireman had arrived with a ladder, the floor had given way, and she was seen no more. The moment of this culminating horror was eleven o'clock and twenty-five minutes, standard time. End of A Wireless Message By Ambrose Bierce Read by Lynn Thompson An Unfinished Race By Ambrose Bierce James Bernard Wilson was a shoemaker who lived in Leamington, Warwickshire, England. He had a little shop in one of the byways leading off the road to Warwick. In his humble sphere, he was esteemed an honest man, although, like many of his class in English towns, he was somewhat addicted to drink. When in liquor, he would make foolish wagers. On one of his too frequent occasions, he was boasting of his prowess as a pedestrian and athlete, and the outcome was a match against nature. For a stake of one sovereign, he undertook to run all the way to Coventry and back, a distance of something more than forty miles. This was on the third day of September in 1873. He set out at once, the man with whom he had made the bet, whose name is not remembered, accompanied by Baron Wise, Alinan Draper, and Hammerson Burns, a photographer, I think, following him in a light cart or wagon. For several miles, Wilson went on very well, at an easy gait, without apparent fatigue, for he had really great powers of endurance, 
and was not sufficiently intoxicated to enfeeble them. The three men in the wagon kept a short distance in the rear, giving him occasional friendly chaff or encouragement as the spirit moved them. Suddenly, in the very middle of the roadway, not a dozen yards from them, and with their eyes full upon him, the man seemed to stumble, pitched headlong forward, uttered a terrible cry, and vanished. He did not fall to the earth, he vanished before touching it. No trace of him was ever discovered. After remaining at and about the spot for some time, with aimless irresolution, the three men returned to Leamington, told their astonishing story, and were afterward taken into custody. But they were of good standing, had always been considered truthful, were sober at the time of the occurrence, and nothing ever transpired to discredit their sworn account of their extraordinary adventure, concerning the truth of which, nevertheless, public opinion was divided throughout the United Kingdom. If they had something to conceal, their choice of means is certainly one of the most amazing ever made by sane human beings. End of An Unfinished Race by Ambrose Pierce Recording by Britannia Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Help support the show and keeping it paywall-free by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate a buck or five or whatever you feel or go to pgttcm.podbean.com and hit that patron button. That will set you up with donating on the regular if you want to keep this show going, if you want to hear two episodes of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos a month, or if you want to hear better stories, higher quality stuff on the, I don't know, monthly readings. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Okay, so, you know you can uh, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. And we just want to say, check out Podbean. It's straight from the source. Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. So next month is going to be August Derleth. Send us any mythos stories that you've written yourself, and we're going to be talking about August Derleth and Arkham House Publishing. Month after that, we're going to have Bronte. So you know Andrew Grace is going to be here for that. He's going to be here, like, probably a lot. October, we're going to have spooky stories, and that's just going to be all kinds of different ghost stories and spooky stories. And then in November, we're going to be going with, like, old, old English stories. So expect some Beowulf. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening so much. And I hope your podcast that's coming up next is good. And not, like, a whole bunch of the ends of podcasts that you're like, oh, I don't want to listen to the person at the end talk about stuff. And then you skip. And, and then, like, at the end of the week, you have, like, all these ends of all these little podcasts and stuff. I always hear myself in those because I'm like, I don't want to listen to myself try and tell myself to help the show get better. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. If you got all the way to this part, high fives. Send me, send, send me a link. I mean, not send me a link. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter or something and said, hey, I got all the way to the end episodes. Hashtag high five. Anyway, you're the best. Keep on going.